Welcome to episode 26 of the Analytics FC podcast. Uh, I'm Tom Warville. As usual, I'm joined by Sam Gregory. Uh, this is an impromptu Monday night podcast. Um, myself and Sam are busy away in exams and uh, dissertation hell. Uh, so we thought, let's let's shoot the shit, chat about, chat about some random analytics stuff, uh, take people's questions from Twitter. Um, so yeah, w- this isn't going to be edited, so uh, sorry in advance. Um, but yeah, hopefully uh, this uh, there's some interesting discussions here, and you uh, uh, you go away feeling a little more informed about analytics or football. So uh, hey, Sam. Hey, that's a lot of pressure. We have to leave, leave the listeners feeling more informed about football. I know it's it's tough. It's going to be tough. Um, so we've got a massive list of questions from Twitter. So I think we're just gonna. Go and pick random ones each. Uh, hopefully, not as challenging as the sort of debate episode we did a few months ago, because um, we that was the similar time to when we lost Grantland, and I think we were both a bit emotional about that. But <laughs> we'll deal with it. Um, okay, Sam, do you want to pick one first, and I'll uh, I'll have a go. Okay. So here, this is. Let's do first one. Worst signing of the year. Go. Ah, uh, this is. I was thinking about this for a while earlier, and I think it's quite tough. Um, uh, very tough, in fact. Um, I'm going to say, for obvious reasons, Falcao is a bit of a stupid signing. Equally, it's not much... Like Chelsea haven't really lost that much signing him because you know they they probably have something going with Jorge Mendes, uh, wages-wise, etc., etc. Um, oh, there's just... There are a lot of players that are signed. I'm struggling here. I'm going to say, yeah, probably Falcao. Um, I'm going to not say Mitrovic just because he wasn't a complete barn burner of a... Not barn burner. He wasn't terrible, essentially. Um, yeah, fuck out. <laughs> I'm sticking with mine. I said Pedro at the start of the season, and I like that. It's a good one. Ooh, that is nice. I was tempted to say Memphis Depay. And I don't think you'd argue too much on that, would you? Yeah, I would, because he's good. And he's like played well. At times, I remember we were we were watching the Michelin game. He was so good against Michelin. He was good like, against still. Michelin. I mean, he hasn't had a good year, but he still is an excellent player. I think who has a lot of potential. I'm still happy at that signing. He wasn't crazy expensive for what he is. I think he yeah. made the Michelin right back cry because he got sent <laughs> off. That's li- no, that was literally in the news. It was in the interview afterwards, and he like the guy said he wouldn't be able to sleep for a few nights. Um, yep. We exclusives here on the Analytics FC podcast. Um, I'm going to actually have to find a link for that and put it in the description because that actually happened. Anyway, um, one for you. Um, biggest analytics overachiever. I think that's club-wise. Does this mean a team that over whose analytics are better than their like whose underlying numbers are better than what they are? Because uh, I mean that's that's Arsenal, obviously, right? I mean, there's no yeah. Well, they'd be underachieving, eh? Oh, then Leicester. <laughs> Fair. That was easy. <laughs> yeah. And why? Okay. Too many 1-0s? Because they're, <laughs> because they're not the best team in the Premier League. Yeah, yeah I mean, the other thing is overachieving isn't a bad thing. I mean, we have this negative connotation with, oh, Leicester have overachieved. That means they don't deserve to win the league or whatever. And that's not what it means. It means they're not the best team in the Premier League and they're going to win. And that's... Good for them. True. Yeah. Hit me. So, um, <clears throat> is it a two-part question, I guess? Who should rep- 
place Wenger and El- and Louis Van Hall. No, I think it's a one part question. They're going to have one manager to to manage both teams. Like hot take, neither of them are going to leave. Both be here next year. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but I mean, should they leave? Um, so to say, end of next season, Wenger. There's a slight likelihood he's probably going to leave. Um, as an Arsenal fan, I'd like to see Thomas Tuchel at Arsenal, uh, just because he's the sort of mould of manager that you quite like. He's very sort of informed. Um, he obviously does things smartly. There was the piece, uh, Rafa Honigstein's piece in the Guardian recently. It was quite a nice insight to how he runs his training sessions. Um, so yeah, for me, I quite like to see Tuchel. Whether that's realistic, I'm not sure. But there we go. Um, for Louis, for Man United. Um, Bit of a long shot, but I'd quite like to see someone like uh, Eddie Howe, just because I'd like to see Eddie Howe or someone build a, a dynasty at Man United the same way that Fergie did. Um, really, because... <laughs> You're going to get Eddie Howe. Well, I don't know. Well, like, you know, who else? I just quite like, you know, from, from when I was younger uh, up till you know, well, throughout my whole footballing life, I've only ever known Man United have one manager, and it feels very weird for them to be like speculation about managers leaving or joining Man United because, like, for the first eighteen years of my life, they've only ever had one guy. So I quite like that too. It was so weird uh, when, like, near the end of Moyes' tenure, I realized it was the first time in like my entire life watching football that I wanted the manager of the club I support to be fired. Like, it was so weird. It was this weird thing that, like, I just had never wanted that before in my life, obviously. And then suddenly, so you anyways. want So you want Moyes back in now, right? <laughs> no. No, fair. Okay. Um, is Riyad Mahrez deserving of Player of the Year? Yeah, I would have voted for him. Um, did you vote for I mean, him? I- <laughs> Sorry? Did you, did you use your vote on, on Mahrez, or...? <laughs> What we don't have a vote? Oh, no. I know that's disappointing. Yeah, but the one he won was PFA, so that's players, right? Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, yeah, I would have voted for him. Um, I like that he has. He's sort of been a creative player and scored a lot of goals this year. He's sort of uh, contributed in a lot of different areas. Whereas, I mean, Ozil has been an assist machine. Kane's been a goal machine. He's sort of been the in-between of the two, I guess. So, yeah, I'm happy with Mares. What about you? Would you have gone Mares? Uh, yeah, I, I call it Mares with a shout. Um, I think I think it's difficult if you're... Well, uh, player's player, yeah, fair Mares. I mean, a lot of these guys would have played against him and thought, geez, you know, I just got ruined by this guy. It's probably um, Martin Demichelis uh, would have been a bit... Embarrassed voting for Mares, considering he absolutely schooled him in the uh, the game of the Etihad. But yeah, probably Mares as well. Yeah, and then I guess the next question is on the PFA team of the year in general. Do you have any big complaints? Uh, not not really. My only maybe is Danny Rose at left back, but that's because I just don't like Danny Rose. Yeah, I had um, I put out a team at my team of the year like a couple of days beforehand, and I think I had two differences from the team that. They picked, which was I had um, Fuchs at left back, yeah. and I had um, Ozil instead of Vardy, and then I had Deli Ali playing a little further back. But Deli Ali also, I mean, that was kind of sentimental, just because it's hard not to love Deli Ali. But yeah, I don't know if he'd actually be deserving of Team of the Year. He's had a great year, but he's 
I mean, that midfield's been really good in general, so. Yeah, yeah. I quite like the, I'm quite happy Bellerin's in there. Alderweireld's definitely, he yeah. has to be in there pretty much. West Morgan, yeah, I guess it was a, a toss-up maybe between West Morgan and Robert Huth. Um, Ooh, Morgan's better than Huth. Significantly better than Huth, I think. I just like, just Huth is like, he just does what he wants on the pitch. So for, <laughs> for like, I don't know. I was about to say the word banter, but that'd be weird. <laughs> but for the like the fun factor of Robert Huth is like he had the Twitter stuff a while back. There's a few blatant handballs at the weekend. I just I think the entertainment value that Huth provides. Um, yeah, if you're picking like a comedy eleven, it's probably best seated <laughs> in there. Um, fair enough. Rose fair, Morris fair, Ali fair, Kante naturally, Paye. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Vardy and Kane as well. And obviously De Gea has to be in there, as you're probably going to go on about now for. Oh, wow. He's the best keeper in the world. He's better than Manuel Neuer. In the world? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to let that one stew. He is. It's, it's a fact. Better, better than Neuer? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. Better than Czech? Nope. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, this is an interesting one. Is there a position that has been the most important slash newly in fashion this year? I has this year been the year of the CDM? Uh, I think uh, they talked about this. I'm going to steal from our rival podcast, Football Weekly. We have no rivals. <laughs> they talked about this. Uh, how it seems to, there seems to almost be this like chase to be able to pick out a player who no one else is talking about. Yeah. Like, and you, Leicester's a perfect example of this. At the start of the season, everyone was all high on Vardy, but then it was cool to say Mares. And then once everyone jumped on Mars, it was cool to say Conte. And when everyone jumped on Conte, it was cool to say drink water. And I think there is this thing where like central defensive midfielders this season have sort of, I guess, traditionally have not got as much attention. And right now everyone is trying to be cool and talk about their favorite central defensive midfielder. I don't think it's been a position that's any more important or less important than in previous years. But, I mean, you sound more insightful saying Conte is a really good player than you do saying Mars is a really good player just because... Every, well, not even at this point, but maybe drink water. You sound like, I mean, you're offering something more insightful, I guess, hmm. just because less people are saying it. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think it's, I don't think center defensive midfielders are more important this year than they've been in previous years. I'm firmly, firmly on the uh, Mohamed Elneny bandwagon, so I'm sort of in this school of CDM, central midfield, but... Yeah, I don't. Th- I mean, it's funny. There was a, there was something I saw on Twitter the other day how like Leicester have managed to win the league without any sort of Trequartista or false nine or like wing back and all this, which is all like well and good. But they have played a very old schoolish formation in, in the four four two, and therefore like they don't have to have these really flashy positions just because every player in their position is maximising, uh, you know, their role and, and you know fills their role perfectly. Do what they have to do, and you know, I think just as well, yeah, just as we, you know, David Sumter was saying, uh, oh, probably have to cut that out now. Um, but yeah, like, you know, a team has to be, the whole has to be greater than the sum of the individual parts. And I definitely think you see that on Leicester, with Leicester on paper. Um, so yeah, probably not a big position this year. Okay, that leads nicely into our next question. Who should top clubs sell slash sign? Which is a huge, broad question. So let's, Leicester, go. Yeah, oh, who should they? Oh, this is tough. Um, I mean, we 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 sort of had this conversation at the start of the year, didn't we? I mean, do you do you cash in on Vardy and Mares now, or would you build a team around them? I think that um, 
I think that you've got to keep those guys and equally where do you strengthen them? If you're going to look at the sort of um, O-ring, is it O-ring? The sort of O-ring idea, I yeah. think that Danny Simpson will probably be displaced at right back for Amate. And I think that they got that that sort of uh, dealings done early in January. Um, I think that, I mean, you need to look to the future. This team's going to get pretty old, especially at centre-back. Um so yeah, maybe maybe a new centre back for Leicester. I know a few people who focus on goalkeeper analytics are going to be saying replace Schmeichel. Um, I don't know. You've got to beef up the squad for the Champions League as well. So I think that you need good replacements. Um, you know, someone who can be sort of you know, this Vardy two Someone who's quick. Uh, I know they're looking at a guy in. Well, there were some reports that they're looking at a guy who's topped the scoring charts in Serie B this year. Um, so yeah, I, I just think you've got to have a second team that can uh, compete on the pitch just as well as this first team have this year. So I just I don't think it's going to be specific. You know, we need a better player here, better player there. Maybe goalkeeper, centre back potentially, but I think it's more they just need to fill out that squad and get it so it can be competing on all fronts next year. Yeah, I agree with that. I'd cash in on Vardy, but just because he's 29 and I think has had a season in a very specific Leicester structure that might not translate as well to previous years and other teams. But, uh, yeah, I would cash in on Vardy. And then, as you said, fill out the squad. Make sure you have enough players to, I mean, if not compete on multiple fronts, just stay afloat on multiple fronts. Yeah. I mean, realistically, next year, what are we saying? Probably top six? You know? Yeah, I think that'd be a good goal for them, top six. Yeah. Being, playing Europe again in uh, 2017. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like, Qualify for Europe again, whether that's Champions League or more likely probably Europa League. But well, yeah, no, they'll win, the, they'll win the football. Champions League. <laughs> yeah, I mean they, they don't need to win the uh, or they don't need to finish top four if they win the Champions League, right? No, exactly. So. Yeah. Um, sweet. Uh, I'm not sure about that one. Actually, yeah, maybe. So, actually, no, I don't. I don't have a clue what that is. Um, <laughs> sorry, listeners, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about there. Um, <laughs> Who who should be on the shopping list from clubs going down slash clubs who failed to come up, and that's in, that's in the Premier League and Championship. So essentially, who are Aston Villa looking to sign? And oh, okay. Um, it's quite an open-ended question. Shall I shall I minimise it a bit more? Who should Aston Villa sign next year to come straight back up to the Premier League, or what areas? That's a very good question and a tough one to answer. I think I mean. <laughs> Where does Aston Villa need strengthen? I think they could uh, definitely strengthen at the back. I mean, they probably need at least one, probably two new center backs. I'm guessing they're going to lose Amave. That's another guy they're going to have to fill in. I mean, there's we'll see what happens with Richards and Les Scott, whether they stick around. But <laughs> they, they need to really upgrade pretty much all over the pitch. Mm. I don't know if you have any better insight to that. I think with Villa, it's like they didn't have an identity this year. They signed Rudy Gusted and then didn't really have many good crosses of the ball. Um, I think that they should melt down Alan Hutton and sell him for parts. Um, yeah, I, I just there's no identity, and I don't think you you can compete if you have a team that is just like there's no direction. The manager isn't suited to the league, etc. So um, yeah, I think you know you've got to you've got to do a Leicester. You've got to look at what we have. What sort of strategy can we play with the players that we do have in the squad, or what strategy do we want to play, and therefore which players do we need to go out and buy? Um, 
you know, whether they see, you know, they try and play a really physical game, which might be suited to the championship with uh, Gusted up front, um, you know, a four four two style formation. I don't really know, but I think it's quite a big, a big summer for Villa all over the pitch, and also they're probably going to get raided for a lot of players. So it, and off the pitch too, right? I mean, they're going to have a new manager. They're going to have a new, well, probably not another director of football, but they're going to be. It'll be, I mean, it'll be a, a new look club on and off the pitch next season for sure. Mm. Uh, so our next question is, will the EPL season be held up as an example of why analytics is awful or why it's great? Should we care? Uh, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's, is analytics awful? Is it great? I think it's just if you do it right and if you inform your decisions, uh, you know, you have to have everything. You have to have the good answers that actually will improve your chance of winning. You have to have good communication of those findings. And then you have to have good execution as well. So I think that Leicester are just... It's a very, um, you know, there's a lot of debate whether it's analytics or not. But that aside, the the process is well documented um, and it's so well sort of nailed down that, that you know, that, that was always going to work regardless of whether you're saying it's, it's analytics or not. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's a great season because people are going to say, you know, analytics help Leicester win the league. So therefore, for people like us um, to get jobs, to get credibility, to get more interest, it's fantastic. And I don't think it's an example of why it's awful because I mean there's no there's no real teams that you know there may be Villa but equally Villa had a lot of troubles off the pitch that you can't solve with analytics analytics you know aren't going to solve the fact that your manager isn't suited to the Premier League or you know analytics aren't going to boost team morale when you could see evidently that it's quite poor so um yeah I think we should care I think it's a I think it's a positive thing but I don't think um you know analytics awful would you yeah I I don't really care. I mean, <laughs> I don't think it matters that much what people say about this season, whether analytics is awful or... I mean, I talked about this in that piece I wrote the other day where it's like, well, what is analytics? And it's not like there's analytics clubs and there's not analytics clubs, so it's sort of a meaningless distinction to make. So I I mean, I think there'll be people who hold this up as an example of why analytics is great and why it's awful in equal portions or whatever, but I don't really care that much about this kind of stuff, I don't think. Yeah, And equally, it's to the point now where it's, there's a lot of speculation. You know, we don't actually know what happens inside of a lot of teams. Um, and, you know, it's, it's easy to say they do analytics or they don't do analytics. But, I mean, like you outline your piece, you know, we could say a club's done when they actually have some really smart people working in them and they're just ideas aren't getting across and vice versa. So I think that, you know, the more clubs buy into it, I don't know if you're ever going to hear about it just because you want to keep these marginal gains you want to keep these you know ideas in-house and protect your ip versus you know the whole money ball thing where suddenly everyone knew about this thing and, and the sort of explosion of save metrics throughout all of baseball happened in a you know pretty short space of time um question for you it's quite a good one um can you apply current models such as expected goals or total shots ratio to women's football yeah this is a really good question because i think like Everyone has sort of who writes about women's football has done this without really going back and looking at the sort of applicability of it. Because, I mean, even across the different leagues in men's football, there's a huge variation in how effective expected goals are, how effective TSR is. I mean, there's plenty of leagues where TSR basically tells you, I mean, in MLS, it tells you almost nothing, right? And there's this huge variety across different leagues. In some leagues, like the Premier League, it does a really good job. In other leagues, it does a much worse job. And I think we sort of said, oh, well, let's apply it to women's football. And I've been guilty of this as well when I wrote uh, women's World Cup pieces last summer. I used expected goals and TSR. 
And I think it's just one of these things where, I mean, we have different models to fit different leagues. And in women's football, we're going to have probably different models in the uh, WSL than we do in the uh, FAWSL, I think it's called over here. It's not the Premier League anymore, I know. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just one of these things we're going to have to come up with different models to fit different situations. But there are people doing good stuff. I mean, uh, Chad Murphy had a really interesting piece looking at expected goals and uh, defensive pressure in WSL last year. There's the uh, WOSA stats project, which has a bunch of people tracking games. So I think stuff like that, once we start to get more and more data on women's football, we'll be able to look more at these models and how they might differ from league to league. Yep, that's fair. It'd be nice to have, hopefully, if NWSL or uh, the the English Women's Premier League, I'm not sure what the official title, grow bigger in the future that you know, there's actually official data collected on them and that sort of opens up a new area of insight because... Yeah, like you say, the, only so much can transition from the men's to the women's game just because you know there are differences in, in league quality and things like that. So it'd be interesting. Also, quick shout out for Tobin Heath because um, just, just some some sick skills. I'm just going to put it out there. If you haven't seen it, there was one from I think it was the first week of NWSL where she did like a an in air flip flap past two players. Lost my mind. Yeah, that's one of those things that you like grow up wishing you could do on a real football pitch yeah. and will probably never happen to 99.9% of us, but at one time. I've been trying. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, so next question is, what are your thoughts on winning games consistently by one goal margins? Uh, I think oh, that's another Lester-ish question, but so many thoughts on this. Um, well, I, I think it's, you know, it, it seems to me that that is a strategy that they've outlined. Um, you go away and look at the data and you can see that, you know, first goal advantage is huge. Um, you know, if you can get that by counter-attacking, being efficient, getting that one goal and just bunkering, it's going to make the opposition, it's going to be hard to, to, you know, concede a goal. Um, I don't know. I, I just think it's a, it's a strategy that so far has worked. Um, the only reason it can't work or it won't work is if your defense is frail and doesn't really uh, structure well. And, and, you know, when you have players like Drinkwater, Kante, and the the sort of defensive shell that Leicester are able to put together, um, I think you know you've got the pieces to make that strategy work, and as we've seen this year, it, it it does work. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely like it's a skill being able to win one goal games and game different game states, shut down games when, when you're up by a goal, but definitely relying on this kind of one goal margin all the time. I mean, Chelsea did it last year; they had a bunch of one goal wins, uh, but it incorporates a lot more risk, right? Just the fact that shit happens and if you're only ever if you're scoring the first goal and then saying just playing the game state sitting back trying to score on the counter you're uh bringing on a lot more risk than it would be from just having i guess like a more comprehensive attack that scores goals gives you insurance goals and beats swansea four nil at the weekend <laughs> yeah i mean maybe leicester just forgot the game plan that game and thought ah swansea easy three points i I'm waiting for the better without Jamie Vardy hot takes, but mm. yeah, what was if Ajo has been the better player? Yeah. All along? <laughs> how many goals does Ajo do? Ajo and Ozaki, Ozaki score playing up front together next year. Oh no! See, this is where we need plus minus. No, okay, we don't need plus minus. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, many models favored Arsenal for so long, yet they flopped so badly. But, but these aren't my words. These are a question someone else's. Um, is this a, is this a bad reflection on models and or analytics? Uh, it's not good. Um, I mean, you can be 
what's the George Box quote? I think it's like, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, maybe Arsenal did have a 2% chance of, of their season turning out this badly, given, I think it was 2% I saw, uh, given their expected goal totals across games. And it is, uh, I mean, our models are only trained on, as I said recently, only about six or seven seasons of full data, like full XY data. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of a lot of noise in them, and there are problems for sure. I mean, they're not they're not going to be perfect, and it could be that our models were per- were like not perfect, but they did a good job this season. And it just happened that Arsenal got really unlucky. I think there's probably something more to. I mean, we, there's been plenty of conversations about it, and it's not a bad. I guess a bad reflection is the wrong word to use because um, we need seasons like this to train our models to be better. And a model not working isn't like something we should be, or a model not working is not the right word. Things like this shouldn't make us upset. That shouldn't be like, oh no, we didn't anticipate this. It should say, okay, well, is this something we don't want to like risk overfitting things? But is this something that was just bad luck? Is this something we we're missing? And I think it leads to interesting conversations. So it's not bad for model our models or analytics. It's good if anything. And I don't think it's bad reflection. It's probably the wrong word. But I think it indicates that we missed something about this Arsenal team. Probably. I mean, it could just have been a bad luck. Yeah. I think, I think your point you made on Twitter there a few days ago about how, you know, we, our whole basis of football in the modern era with, in terms of analytics is literally based since, like, you know, for seven years' worth of data, which is, you know, in the grand scheme of things for baseball, they've been collecting this stuff for, I think, several hundred years now. So, you know, give us 20 years more XY data. <laughs> Not quite several hundred years. Sorry. No, I, I said 100. I I hope I didn't say several hundred. <laughs> They've been collecting baseball data since 1600. Um, but, no, that's no, fine. Um, but no, like, you know, give us another 10, 20 years, the models be, you know, models have a lot more data. Um, all these things won't seem like, you know, booking the trend and, and beating models so massively purely because, uh, you know, currently there's such a small sample in the grand scheme of things uh, of data for these things. So, yeah. And also... You know, teams are trying out tactics and they're doing things that potentially they've never done previously, and therefore that's never been picked up uh, in the data we're using. So, it, you know, analytics in its early stages publicly is is you know quite minor, and equally in the sort of global scale of what what has been done, we're still so early purely because of the availability of data and so few seasons that have been actually uh, recorded. Yeah. So our next question is, could you discuss a bit on how goalkeepers determine the style of play of a team, like pictured at Sunderland? Uh, <laughs> it's a tough one, sorry. Yeah, that's no, fine. Um, well, I, I can't use the pick for, for Sunderland example because I've only seen them play with Manone. So if you know what the pick for, for Sunderland thing is, Sam. No. I mean, they've played with a ridiculous number of keepers. Yeah. So... I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't have an, exa- an answer to that question, but I have an answer to a similar question, which is yes, goalkeepers obviously do influence the style of you know the style of play of the team. Mainly because I'm going to go back to the old Bayern Munich example is that you know you you have a goalkeeper say at Bayern that is good with his feet, and whether he's good with his feet or not, whether it's just he's used more than other teams, that's fair. I don't really know. I'd like to hear if anyone can, after this, let me know what the, the whole Pickford for Sunderland thing is and whether they change the style of play with him in. Um, I think it, it depends on what players you have on the pitch and if it's to do with, say, distribution, it depends with uh, you know your options out of the back, 
how you're uh, setting up your shape uh, from like goal kicks or if you're in the first phase of or second phase of build up whether you use the goalkeeper to you know put one of those players outfield players to distribute the ball um, things like that I think it can d- determine the style of play but to how much apart from possession I'm really not sure I think the reverse is also true like your style of play should dictate the type of goalkeeper you look for and what skills you ask for from a different keeper but yeah it gets a complicated question and I not think, knowing as much about keepers as I do about every other position on the pitch. It's hard for me to talk about this with any real degree of knowledge. I think that with, um, I mean, there are some rumors that uh, Pep wants to bring to Stegen to Man City instead of um, Joe Hart, maybe fight for that position, which is quite an interesting one because that obviously, like you just said, is dictating the keeper compared to the style of play you want to play. Uh, to Stegen, evidently plays in this really possession-heavy Barcelona team and when he played Arsenal a few weeks ago, just was scary in his possession of how they were able to get out of tight situations and beat the Arsenal press by just like a few acute passes, um, just sort of nullifying the, the threat of an onrushing uh, Mesut Ozil and Olivier Giroud. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's an interesting area, something that we're likely to see more of as teams sort of realise that, hey, goalkeepers aren't just for hoofing the ball 60 yards up the field and they're not just there to get in the way of shots. We can actually use these guys... Maybe a little more than that, as we're seeing with uh, you know Pep's teams and and, and uh, this current Barcelona team. Uh, one for you. Um, name an area of work slash metric which you don't value with reasons why. I mean, <laughs> the easy answer is PDO. Um, trying to think of. I did, I did an interesting piece on PDO the other day, which is stuff I think we've been saying on this podcast for a while, which is that it just doesn't make sense in the context of football. Yep. Um, I, I don't think there's any area of work that I don't value. I think it's worth looking into all different things. And there's metrics that I see where I think, okay, that's not the right way to measure this right now. But there's no like area of work that is necessarily useless. Or there's not very many areas of work that are useless. Yeah, so I wouldn't. There's nothing where I'd say, don't look into that anymore, or stop. But there are bad metrics, and PDO is one of them. I think alternatively, if there's a, an area of work of a met- sorry, area of work slash a metric which we value a lot, maybe we should start looking into more. Not speaking for myself and Sam, I mean, as sort of a community, is, you know, there are still loads more applications of expected goals that, that you know, looking, using expected goals as the sort of variable of measure. Uh, you know, not just to value attacking players, but you know, value different style of attack. Or um, I don't know. I just feel that XG is very. Maybe it's because previously there wasn't the data available, but now that you even you know you have Paul Riley's model, which is public, um, and there's you know there's more that can be done with XG. I feel than you know than people are doing. Um, but don't ask me for. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to give away my ideas. <laughs> Um, is there any situation in which Mark Noble would, should get in the England squad? Um, good question. Well, yeah, like heavy food poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I don't think he is now. I, I think it's tough because, like, you know, he's this, like, enigmatic workhorse and English midfielder. Um, but in the same boat, you could say that Lee Catamol is in the same mold, you know, mold, although he's playing on a far worse team currently um, 
I don't know. I feel bad that Mark Noble's never got a cap for England, and I hope he does at some point, just because, um, I don't know, it would fit the narrative quite well. Um, but equally, like he won't get in now. He's got Drinkwater ahead of him, who, you know, he might not get on the plane. He might, um, yeah. No, there's, yeah, there's plenty of centre midfielders who should be in the squad either... A, should be in the squad over him just based on pure talent, and B, are younger players who are going to be there in the future and will probably benefit more from even like a couple minutes of the Euros and Mark Noble ones. So, yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Um, tips for people studying sports analysis and how to get started or get experience? So uh, what, what think, tips? Yeah, I think we've got this question a lot, and I think we normally answer it the same way, which is start doing stuff, start blogging, tweet about it get on twitter get in discussions with people you'll get feedback pretty quickly um and just get your stuff out there if you have an idea and just start asking interesting questions collect data uh there was a really good piece which we should mention that um every team needs a wrong uh mark thompson did recently and i think it's a really good example because he uh had this question about crosses crosses have sort of been this big debate in the analytics community recently how effective they are and he looked at uh players between the player crossing the ball and the number of opposition players between the player crossing the ball and the intended target and uh, found very different results for a different number of defenders in between and it's one of those things where he just had a really clear question said i'm gonna go get the data this data don't exist they don't exist publicly i'm gonna go get them and he collected the data answered the question started an interesting discussion and i think stuff like that is I mean, easy is the wrong word to use because i'm sure he spent lots of time collecting the data, but it's something where he had a good question, went and got the data, answered it, got good feedback, started an interesting discussion. So I think that would be probably the best way to start to get into this kind of field is just ask questions and answer them. I think also, apart from, you know, aside from that, um, one of the things that we've learned over the past few months is that teams are working with football clubs. There's a lot more opportunities than you would imagine to work with teams. I think that you know, if you want to work with teams, you need to sort of build relationships and reach out to people who are working within teams now. Um, sort of seeing, you know, from your lower league teams all the way up to your Premier League teams, if you they have any stuff you want to work on, any experience. Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's there's a lot of scope where we think it's a big divide between sort of the us and the them, the sort of blogging and analytics community and the, the actual real football guys. Um, and I think that that gap is smaller than you think. Um, so, you know, if you, you know, you start working, start blogging, start asking questions, reading loads of things, just trying to get in and taking as much of different people's different opinions and works as you can. And then also just trying to work within a team because you won't build up your skills any better than if you actually do it firsthand, if this is something you want to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, so next question, <laughs> I'm assuming this is from Joel, but I don't know. Do you think Tim Sparr will or should move on to a bigger league? <laughs> That's actually not from Joel. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's not from Joel. Um, but let's pretend it is. So Joel Salomon <laughs> asked, no, no, um, I, well, yeah. Am I answering this? I, I'm I, guessing the last time that you saw him play was also the last time I saw him play. Which was at Old Trafford, and he didn't play well that day. So, no. well, I, using using my small sample size, no, <laughs> and using your eyes as well. Oh. <laughs> um, I don't know, Tim. Well, he's an international midfielder from Finland. He's got Europa League experience, and I think if you looked at his numbers, he's a fairly decent destroyer uh, in that sort of defensive midfielder role. Um, and he seems like a cool guy. That should count for something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. 
I don't know. Maybe? Well, uh, I don't know. We'll find out. We'll see, we'll <laughs> see you this summer. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, cool. Oh, this is going to be a fun one for you. Is it, a miss, is, it a, is it a myth that Arsenal players haven't converted Ozil's chances well enough? Ooh. A myth. Like that's, oh, that is a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it a myth that I think? At Gregory D. Sam, if you don't agree with Sam's answer. <laughs> Um. Yes, maybe. <laughs> I mean, they've underperformed expected goals. Oh, there which it is. I think suggests that they haven't finished as well as they should have this season. Um. So I think that indicates that Arsenal players probably haven't converted Ozil's chances well enough. Um. But that being said, I mean, all these things are so interconnected. It's so hard to say, like, oh, because uh, this player didn't finish this position or this uh, shot from a 0.3 expected goals position, then it's his fault. I mean, there's there's so much that leads to that, that a lot comes in the buildup, a lot comes um, in terms of the defensive positioning. So it's hard to say, oh, because Ozil made this pass to Giroud and Giroud missed it, missed the shot. That's Giroud not finishing Ozil's chances. So I think it's hard to like lay the blame that directly. But in general, I would say you could probably make a good argument that Arsenal players haven't converted those chances well enough. Yeah. And it's something that Colin Trainer posted a few weeks ago, how Giroud's actually, uh, well, at the time of writing, I think it was like the start of April, he was the only player to uh, score above expected goals, score above expectation even. Um, which is, you know, is that down to other players? You know, is that is that uh, you know a finishing skill? You know, if you're passing the ball to El Nani and he's shooting, is that the same as passing to Sanchez and shooting something like that? But equally, it's tough to say. I don't think. I think to answer a similar question, a lot of Arsenal fans want Giroud out and want Walker out, and I don't think uh, you know it's tough because there's a lot of variance in football that we can't seem to measure. Giroud's finishing sort of on expectation. Um, yeah. It's difficult, and equally, we don't. I don't feel we have the data or have scrutinised the video enough to really tease out whether those chances are created. Or sorry, those created chances are scored um, or underscored compared to the data. I think that Richard Whittle's piece uh, that came out, I think it was this week or back end of last week, um, highlighted this quite well. Sort of marrying up the use of data and the use of video, uh, and showing how sort of a 0.5 xG chance on video doesn't actually look like a 0.5 xG chance and obviously we can't really adjust for that now because you can't realistically go through all the video to check through chances uh, that's something that's probably able to do with tracking data but yeah this is it's a really interesting question and uh, I'd, I'm sort of as an Arsenal fan uh, hoping that Stat DNA have more answers than I do right now <laughs> that's fair um so next question is uh, Ali Dyer Rooney as a midfield three for England this summer? Yay or nay? And if not, who? Well, it's it's Ali and Dyer, but it's not Rooney. Um, yeah, I think so. It was Ian who asked this question, and he made a good point saying, "Well, Rooney's going to be in the team, right?" Yeah, I, I so mean, you got to fit him. You got to fit him somewhere. It's a horrible, horrible dilemma for Roy Hodgson. Uh, and the fact that I've been asked this question shows it's a horrible, horrible dilemma for me right now as well. Um, I, I mean, you, you get Rooney in the squad, yeah, because, you know, captain, you can't really drop him. But equally, who do you put in there? I don't think you need Danny Drinkwater in there because you sort of have uh, the sort of Ali Dyer fill that well. Whether you play 
Ross Barkley, I'm not really comfortable with that either. I quite like Adam Lallana. Um, maybe Henderson. I think you. Yeah, I was going to say Henderson, just because you might want someone who's a little more. I mean, you've got Alley; he'll probably be bombing forward. You might want someone with a little more solidity, especially if you're playing four three three. Yeah, I mean, to sort of bend this question, say you know the back four is fairly constant. Who are your front three in this England team? <laughs> um, if we're going to, are we saying Rooney? I'm going to leave Rooney out. Just I'll put him in midfield, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think my front three. Sturridge, Kane, and Welbeck, I think. So no Sterling and no Vardy. Oh, actually, sorry, sorry, sorry. I put Sterling in. No, no Vardy, though. No Vardy. Yeah, um, yeah Sterling, sorry. Yeah, sorry? Sterling, Sturridge, and Kane, I think. That's interesting. And you're using yeah. Kane as a, sorry, you're using Vardy as an impact sub from like 60 minutes in? Yeah, I think so. Right, yeah. I, I'd probably agree with that. That's fair. Um, another one for you. Should Leicester sell off their best players? I think we sort of talked about this. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, let's go for a different one. Um, <laughs> age profiles and minutes. Has this been a factor this season? Uh, so comparing Spurs' rotation and Leicester City's consistency. So age profiles being the sort of ages of players, whether they're in their peak ages from roughly 24 to 27, I think. And the minutes is minutes, minutes used, minutes played. Yeah, I think it's been a factor, but it's hard to sort of say how and where. Um, I mean, I think Pochettino's uh, handled his squad really, really well this season. And you look at, I mean, you just look at the uh, how hard he's run his fullbacks and how he's rotated them pretty much entirely throughout the season. And he's got a lot out of four different fullbacks, essentially, right? Yeah. And so I th- think that is something that when you look at, okay, he's playing. In general, they've all been younger players, and he's rotated them. Work them hard. I mean, he's clearly paying attention to this kind of stuff. Um, with Leicester, it's hard to say how much of this has just been luck that no one's gotten injured yet. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, this it's always a factor, right? Age profiles and minutes and how you handle your squad, how you deal with uh, fixture congestion. These are all important things and they're a factor every season, I think. I think, I mean, it's something we've discussed quite a few podcasts about ago about how Maybe the key to sort of defensive stats or measuring defense is, uh, you know, having a solid back four that communicates well. And, you know, if you had uh, collaborative movement and things like that, where, so where they're sort of very well uh, gelled, if that's, you know, the term we can use. Um, and I think that Morgan and Huth have started most games this season. I don't think they've missed, might have missed one. The stat that I saw a few weeks ago was that they started 31 out of 32 games together, which is massive. Um, and I think that Simpson's been in a lot of those as well, and so has Fuchs. So I think that there's a large scope there just down to the fact that these guys play with each other in training uh, every single game, week in, week out. Um, and they're just, you know, that, that consistency in playing with each other, everyone knowing their role, going back to what we said earlier. Um, I think there's, you know, there's big merits to doing that. And the, the other sort of recent team that have done that, they did very well, was um, I think it was Koeman's Southampton side last year. Uh, I think it was Font and. Out of our world as well, I think, as well. And then they had Bertrand, a left-back, uh, and I can't remember who the right-back would have been. Um, but yeah, the sort of that team was really uh, defensively solid as well, and that was probably down to... Or similarly, um, you know, they had the same thing, uh, the team that played together a lot at the back. So it could have been, could have been a factor, it might not have been, but yeah, just an interesting observation. So our next question is, do you ascribe to the Mourinho theory that matches are typically won by the team who makes the fewest mistakes? 
I haven't given this much thought, but that'd be something quite interesting to uh, actually measure, I think. Maybe. <laughs> I'm good at asking, answering these questions, but maybe. Um, I think you'd have to look at sort of where the mistakes are made and whether these are sort of big, fatal mistakes. Uh, also, how you maybe define a mistake as well. You know, is a is a failed pass a mistake? Is a missed shot a mistake? Uh, you know, a, a very high uh, likelihood of a goal where you've missed the shot is that mistake. So, um I don't know. That's quite an interesting question, actually. Something to take away I think it on. depends a lot about, on team style. I mean, you look at the two Madrid teams, right? Yeah. They're, they're um, clo- very close to each other on the table right now. And Real Madrid has certainly makes more mistakes in a season than Atletico Madrid, right? But then on the flip side, they score way more, create way more. So, I mean, it's hard to sort of... I think it so much comes down to team style and that there's teams that can afford to make more mistakes just because of the type of team they are and the personnel they have than other teams who actually, I mean, it's an interesting that it's being called the Mourinho theory here because Mourinho probably does think this because his teams are not designed to go out and win games 6-7-0. His teams are 6-7-2 or whatever it may be. His teams are designed to score a goal, shut it down, and win game, win low-scoring games. So for Mourinho teams, probably matches are typically won by the team who makes the fewest mistakes. Yeah, that's fair. Um, has there ever been a team that's underperformed expected goals as much as Arsenal has this season? I mean, this is one of those, it has a definitive answer, right? Yeah. We just would have to go look at. <laughs> or alternatively, what team do you think might have? And we can see if someone can give us the data afterwards. <laughs> what team? Um, I mean, City underperformed expected goals, I think, a lot last season. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know. That's just one that comes to mind right away. Um, yeah, it's funny. I can think of way more teams that have overperformed expected goals. I guess it's just something we talk about more often. I mean, the Mönchengladbach outperforms them every year up until this year. Yeah, Stuttgart are a team that have done pretty well to underperform this year, actually. Um, yeah. Referencing Michael Cayley's uh, advanced stats for European leagues. This is a good question for you, Tom. Has anyone ever tried to do an analysis of expected pass accuracy to determine above and below average passers? Uh, pass. That isn't a pun. <laughs> That's a really good pun, if so. Um, yeah, looked at, looked at a model like that, but I think there are a lot of things in there that you need to maybe account for that we don't have access to yet to make it accurate. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's a good idea. Yeah, it's a great um, idea. Um, if yeah. you have the data, it's worth looking at. Cool, next question. <laughs> Uh, you guys discussed, well, have we read or seen the <laughs> MLS slash Opta article, How to Build an MLS Roster? I've actually read this, if you haven't, so I can discuss Yeah, it. no, I have. This was the competition, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, it was sort of hard because the article didn't go over the rationale for how they created their roster. And um, it would, what would be really interesting is to see is uh, if how, like, you are my roster or some, if it was released to people who do MLS analytics, how their rosters would compare to what was done by these uh, different schools competing. So, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting idea. That's I don't a, know if you have anything It'd be quite an, quite an interesting project. The only, I mean, they, the slides didn't really go into much detail. It was more like you chose a method, uh, philosophy of how you want to play and chose players that fit that style. Um, the only thing that I saw out of the players that the sort of winning team selected was that there was a massive 
sort of if you if you sort of know the players of MLS, which I I feel fairly confident that I do, there was a massive hole in terms of like the defensive side of the midfield, um, and it's just whether a philosophy like that, which has like I think the six players of midfield and and sort of the forward formation that they would use were really forward attacking players. Um, so you know you'd have to account for some sort of defence in midfield, which this team just uh, hadn't. But equally, that's not to say that they're not just going to counterattack the hell out of that, um, try and use a high press of sorts, and then just you let the defence, you know, the back four mop up. But um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's something that Atlanta are going to be sort of potentially looking at using analytics going into the 27 season, so 20, yeah, 2017 season even. Um, so yeah, worth if you're an MLS fan or even if you're not, just keeping an eye out on the sort of players that they're signing and uh, you know maybe looking at the rationale behind that because I think they're going to be doing some uh, some smart things in the next sort of few months leading into the 2017 season in March next year. And this ties in kind of nicely to the next question, which is uh, how do you assign monetary values like wage and transfer values to uh, uh, key performance index, key performance indicators, and the players identified in the outcomes of your models? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, how do you assign them? Well, I think it's difficult because I think we might have discussed this previously, uh, especially in the sort of podcast we did with Damien Camerley, how, you know, you there's no point speculating in figures for transfer fees because there's a lot that goes into that move that you just can't factor. You know, you can't look at a player and unless you're, you know, a lot of things I would have done two or three years ago without thinking of the data or thinking smartly about this is, oh, he's a £20 million player with literally having no rationale, whereas now you need to look at, you know, you factor in age profile, you factor in current contract length, you factor in um, sort of maybe on the revenue side, uh, you know, how much extra extra added revenue they might bring in, you know, uh, injury proneness, things like that, into wages and transfers. And therefore, if you can accurately predict or, or sort of, choose figures for those then yeah attachment KPIs because it just makes sense to value players and see ones which are similarly uh, have similar KPIs outputs on the playing side versus their actual cost that you're factoring together um, what do you what do you think I mean to put on my economist hat for a second uh, the transfer window and it, well the transfer market and essentially the player market isn't a competitive market which means that the wages that a player gets paid at every single team is not the same. There's a whole bunch of price discrimination in terms of how much teams will, different teams will play for the same player in terms of transfer fee, and then also what different teams would be expect to play the same player in terms of wages. So it's hard to sort of say that like this output corresponds to this wage or this transfer fee, just because there are all these different factors at play that have nothing to do with the actual value of the player. And there's the fact that different players have different values to different teams, right? And at different times. Like if you're um, looking for a player on August 31st, it's a whole lot different than looking for a player on June 31st. Is that a date? I don't think June 31st is a day. June 30th. <laughs> no, I think maybe. I don't think. Anyways. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I, I'd agree with <laughs> So that. I think there's all these other factors at play. So it's hard to sort of say this player is worth this much this much wages per week and this much uh, in the transfer market because there are all these other different factors that will help determine these two things. Wait, did you say June 31st? Yeah, June 31st yeah, is not a day. definitely not a day. Why did I argue that point? <laughs> Nightmare. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. It's an interesting thing, though. I think that something that I haven't ever read much about is determining value in, in football. You know, there are 
there's going to be a lot of transfers where the the value is too high and the value paid is too low. Um, you know, is there a model out there that you can build using even basic things like minutes and age, where you know, even not looking at current prices, saying how much a player is theoretically worth, and then seeing if transfers are under or overvalued, and therefore, you know, maybe see transfer mark values are interesting because they're the only public resource we have, but I think a lot of people shy away from them because we don't understand what's gone into that system. Um, but yeah, I mean, value value is a big area to look into if you're starting out and you. You, know, you want to find your niche, then maybe you know replicating that, or even on a small scale, is something that you know I definitely read. I guess you know, and it's it's also worthwhile, I think, for a club to have something like this for an individual. I mean, I talked about how the clubs makes a, the clubs involved in transaction make huge differences to these values. But if you're Arsenal, let's say you know how much you you value this player given your budget, given your budget constraints, and the kind of player you're looking for you can have a number value that corresponds to how much you value that player and how much you're willing to pay for that player. It's just not going to be universal in any way. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point to, to sort of make uh, on, say, Vardy this year. So last year he wasn't really starting that many games, and I think Nugent was paid ahead of him. And if you tell me a year later that you know, teams are thinking of, you know, people are valuing Vardy at like 20, 25 million pounds compared to where he was last year, you'd be, that'd be crazy. Um, so you just can't tell. I think it's more, you know, it comes down to also if they're not play, not getting the minutes, not getting the output, you know, what is their ability and what do you think that that player can attribute to your team without actually having it, having done so in the numbers, uh, which employs a lot of risk because obviously you can't measure, you can't say, well, this guy's done this before, he's not done this before. Um, but equally, you know, no one's ever going to bid £20 million to Vardy last year. Um, whereas obviously this year that would be a very uh, credible and less crazy figure. Well, that is that is our list of questions. I think we, did well. we might have missed a couple, but that was way longer than I expected. We had good questions. We did. That was good. We'll have to do this again. Yeah. Um, I guess we should just mention that, I mean, we are in the middle of exams, as we said, so we probably won't be. We have an episode next week with David Sumter, which... I mean, we've already recorded, so it was a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, and uh, we're going to be pretty quiet, I think, over the next month or so. But after that, we'll, we'll be we'll have stuff for the Euros, um, the Olympics. We've talked about doing things for as well. And I think we should be much more regular after we finish exams at the end of May. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, hopefully this was interesting. Uh, it wasn't as waffly as uh, we hopefully think it doesn't sound. If that makes any sense. A lot of negatives in that sentence. Yeah, that's too many. <laughs>